This is CliffCentral.com. So fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. Love it, love it, love it. Producer Duncan on point again. Zola, get up, fabulous, beautiful, beautiful. Sunday night, Welcome to the show. It is frankly speaking, one hour of frank conversations with uh, my man Rorsang Shavalala, who has got a beautiful. Beautiful beanie on today because it's freezing in studio. Welcome to the show. Uh, if you've just joined us, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, cliffcentral.com, frankly speaking. Hey, Rory. We've been doing lots of stuff uh, around youth issues lately. We had uh, the students who we were going to cremate last week, who then we had to do a memorial service for <laughs> because uh, they were just nowhere. We had Lebo Rasataba uh, talking about uh, the people versus the Rainbow Nation. And, uh, and now it's June, which is youth month, you know, 1976, 16th of June, all that jazz. So we're kicking off this month with a very interesting topic around mm. these born frees yes they're supposed to be the ones that save us from ourselves mm. these born frees are they immune from racism but isn't that a dumb question rory why would it be dumb well just because you said it <laughs> <laughs> there are no such things as dumb questions no, but i mean the reason i say isn't it isn't it a flawed question because clearly everyone not not just the born frees are not immune from race why well, you, there's a whole there's a whole group of society that believes that uh, born frees are immune. They weren't here. They they are post 1994, born into freedom. Why in the world would so they carry? What? Why in the world would they carry all of these things? That's that's the whole thing. We keep whenever we're having arguments, we say, "Oh, it's just one generation needs to die, right?" And then somehow, when that generation dies, mm. we're gonna be all cool. So. Yeah. Just curious to understand, but you know, is it is that true? Let's test it. This generation of born oh, frees are they indeed uh, immune from racism, and are they are they not going to just perpetuate all the things that the elders have uh, have have taught them? I feel like born frees is a bit of a rainbow nation farce. Those two are cousins or, or brothers and sisters. You know, you rainbow nation cynics, eh? No, what, no, what's your, I'm what's not your saying, problem? I'm not saying you're rainbow nation. I'm just saying you know this idea of born freeze like like someone waved a magic wand and suddenly these guys are different to everyone else they are they were born post 1994 no, they're different to everybody else me how me. are they different i grew up how are they different i grew up carrying a water bucket and now i have a hole in my head now i have a hole in my head you don't have a hole in your head it's true yeah it's true. but i have a hole in my head they don't have holes in their head <laughs> This sounds, this sounds like a like a, a, a wives' tale. You don't have a hole in my head, and I've got a hole in my head, so therefore I'm better than you. All right, we're talking about the born freeze. Are they immune from racism? I think we know that race obviously still exists. I mean, we're not stupid, nor are you. Um, but the idea of what does race and race relations mean to born freeze is very interesting to me. Um, I do think that there is a difference, uh, or maybe there isn't. Maybe there isn't. I, I think there is. That's where I'm coming from. Uh, Rory, you, you are, no, where no, are look, you? So I don't, I personally don't think they're immune from racism. 
um, in as much as you and me weren't immune from from racism. I mean, mm-hmm. yes, we were born in the 80s, but most of the 80s we were just running around in sand and pooing in our nappies pooing and, in our pants yeah, yeah. and all of that. Yeah. So we can't really say. I mean, when we started waking up, it was also sort of post-94. Sure. So And and I think at some stage it was believed that we were going to be the generation that, that puts an end to this, and we certainly haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't think that uh, the, the born frees are immune from racism, but right. I think rather than speaking on behalf of, the, of, of born frees, we should actually get born frees to, to speak for themselves. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Let's let's before we do that, let's get someone in who who knows what they're talking about. Professor Jolene Kutzer is at the NMMU. Uh, she's a professor there who did a huge study on race relations, um, political affiliations between uh, 2013 and 2015. Uh, she's on the the line from the Windy City uh, PE. Jolene, good morning to you. Good morning. How are you? Very, very good. Jolene, give us a sense of what this research was about and what uh, what came out of it. Well, for me, I think what was quite an interesting question to ask was, you know, we had a, a generation that have grown up exclusively uh, under democratic rule, that have come of age. And I just wanted to know, you know, what are some of their political values, views on the value of the vote, views of race relations, which was quite important if we consider, um, you know, the racialized uh, nature of oppression of the apartheid system, and just perceptions on quality of life. You know, has their quality of life improved? Um, do they feel that their quality of life at their age is better or the same than their parents at the same age as they were? I'm interested to understand what your pre-position was uh, before the, the research came out. What did you think you would find? Well, I think, you know, we, we've all kind of bought into this narrative of reconciliation, of rainbowism, of building a united um, united South Africa. So what, what some of my pre-assumptions was that I would kind of find, you know, um, perceptions out there that, yes, race relations had improved significantly. Yes, we are getting it wrong now. Yes, we are working towards building a better future, um, but the reality of of the research was something completely different. What what was this reality that you that you uncovered, Professor? I think the most interesting thing was that um, you know across the board, uh, from black participants through to white participants, Indian participants, coloured participants, everybody spoke a narrative of oppression. You know, we live in a democratic era where we are supposed to have all of these civil liberties and rights, rights and civil liberties that our parents didn't have. Um, And yet the majority of respondents indicated that, yes, race relations had improved slightly. Um, Yes, we are perhaps more tolerant of um, people of different races than our parents, but we are still oppressed. We are either oppressed through the narrative of poverty or we are oppressed because we are being excluded from things like the job market, um, accessing quality education, accessing basic sanitation and so forth. So everyone feels oppressed? Everybody. Um, you know, it, 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 like it, it was quite such a shocking finding that across the board, the in inverted commas, democratic experience of university students who participated in the study a key narrative that came out was, well, the oppression continues, either through socioeconomic exclusion of poverty or uh, policies of affirmative action in the case of white participants, 
or alternatively not having equal access to the same quality education and same quality health care. How exactly, I mean, I'm interested to hear the comments uh, from, from your white participants. How, how do they feel oppressed? Well, you know, some of the, the, the uh, in terms of when we asked why, you know, do you feel race relations had improved? And then we, of course, asked what is the reason for your answer? Um, it was a sense that, you know, yes, we had apartheid. Yes, you saw oppression, um, you know, of a white population over a majority black population. But as a person, I had never grown up under under the apartheid era. So they almost feel a sense of, well, I didn't necessarily benefit. Of course, um, we know the, the flip side of the argument is, is that if you look at institutions and kind of one of those legacies of apartheid, and you look at Model C schools, for example, the V um, township schools, there, there is a, a continuation of that institutionalization of benefit, if you will. So if you are able to access Model C schools, then yes, you've got a better start in life as opposed to, um, you know, a person who has to struggle through a very under-resourced township school. Jolene, you mentioned this Model C schools. I just want to zoom in on them, but because your research uh, highlights uh, that uh, something that is common or at least that comes up about this generation is they latch onto the single story, which is weird because you think that in Model C schools they're being exposed to stories across the board. How is it that this generation that uh, has a greater greater access to others, particularly the Model C generation, uh, latch onto single stories. Can you just elaborate on the single story uh, theme? What is the single, the single story? And yeah. then, and then, how this happens? Because for me, it sounds weird. No, I know it does. Um, there's a, a fantastic Nigerian author, um, you know, and she has written quite a lot about uh, the danger of the single story. So, in essence, her argument is that even though we are um, You know, we operate and we work and we play and we interact in a multicultural, multiracial, multi-ethnic context. Some of our preconceived stereotypes and notions about political reality um, doesn't necessarily allow us to see anybody as anything else than what we've constructed them in our heads. So Mm -hmm. she made a use of an example. Um, She came from a middle-class family in Nigeria. And the example that she used was the people that her family employed to help in the house. You know, and her mother would always tell her, well, don't you know that this person is poor? You know, eat all your food because they they would love to have this food. They are poor. And she was quite surprised when she uh, went to go and visit um, in the village where the house helper was and noticed that they could make the most beautiful crafted baskets and it dawned on her. She only saw them as being poor and not being able to, you know, to make anything as creative and as beautiful. And that is the single story that even though we interact with each other um, on a daily basis and one would hope that we find a common ground, I think the racialized prism through which we look at our socio-political and socio-economic life almost entrenches that single story about the different groups. Um, And the danger there, of course, is because we cannot seem to move beyond the single story, we cannot find a common ground to really unite in building that better South Africa that we need. 
Just just for our listeners, uh, I think that the person you're speaking about is Chimande Ngozi Adiche, who um, yes. she's, yes, she's got an amazing, so. amazing TED talk called "The Danger of the Single Story." But I think just to just to get back a little bit, what is the single story in the, the Born Freeze right now that that you're referring to? Well, the single story is if we look at something like non-racialism, for example. You know, non-racialism is supposed to be this worldview that we don't recognize race. Um, but yet amongst the born free, and again, I use the term born free very loosely, um, you know, we find it's a, it's a story of just being tolerant of one another, you know, um, and not necessarily moving towards really getting to know one another better so that we can unite around the, the, the very essence of policy processes and policies that we need to try and deal with the crises that we're in. Um, it's, it's interesting, when I present this research at various universities, um, I ask the question, um, just put up your hand if you agree with this, all white people are rich, for example, and hands just shoot up across the board. But the, re- the reality is something different, for example. We know that there is white poverty. I also ask the question, for example, only black people benefit from affirmative action policies, and of course all hands shoot up. And again, the reality is something different because it's not just one group that may benefit. You are also talking about gender, for example. Professor, how where, so you speak about this prism that we look through, and that's that's obviously a theoretical construct. But uh, can you make it real and practical for us? Uh, what are the sources of these single stories that born frees are getting their single stories from? Where 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 exactly? Are these single stories emanating from, and and what does this prism look like in the real world? Well, I mean, single stories tend to emerge, I would say, when there are events, um, you know, that kind of confirm the, the political construction or the stereotypes or perceptions that we have about reality. So, you know, if I make reference to um, what is her name, the state agent, Penny Sparrow, for example. You know, you have one individual who really, really demonstrated a vile, racist attitude, but then everybody gets painted with that same brush, so to speak. So it's not just one individual, but an entire population. Um, Another example of a single story would be that when you have uh, one politician messing up, for example, it's one individual, correct? But now, all of a sudden, a whole group's ability to leadership, for example, gets brought into into question. Professor, and that's where yeah. Is. So, so I, I think on that, what I'm trying to get at is how come this generation of all generations, uh, your generation, uh, my generation, I'm a little bit older, born in the 80s. Uh, it would be sort of understood in inverted commas why we latch onto single stories. But this generation who one would assume were born into freedom, um, particularly the ones in Model C schools, they associate across color lines and so on. Why is it, what is it about this generation that makes it easy for them to latch onto the single story when we all expect differently, I, I imagine? Well, look, I mean, we all go through a process of political socialization. You and I are closer to age. You know, I was born in the, in the late 70s, for example. So, mm. I think we've got uh, more of a keen eye to to these things. But for this particular generation, you know, you, you go through a process of political socialization at home. So very often some of the 
um, some of the values, ideas, perceptions that your parents have may get transferred to you. Um, you go to a, a multiracial school, for example, but you still come with some preconceived ideas that you may have gotten at home. So very often what we find is that in order to create a new society, if you will, these things are generational. The values of the 50s, for example, are not necessarily the values that we have today. Things change as generations change and push for social change. But it's a very slow process. Um, this is one generation. So we have to ask ourselves if the racial prism dominates the perceptions um, of political reality of this generation, what impact is it going to have on how they could, for example, see one another in a democratic South Africa. So the problem is the parents then? Well, to a degree, it goes down to what we hear at home. But um, we call it political cognition, if I can get very academic now, and I apologize. But, (laughs) you know, we we call it political cognition, that um, we we learn our values and, and the basis you know, of what we see as right and wrong and so forth at home, in the school system, um, in our various churches, for example, and also amongst our peers. Um, you know, if you look at, at, for example, the Seas Must Fall movement, you know, it, it was a massive movement that united across the racial and class board um, late last year to really challenge government on the cost of higher education. And you fast forward a few months later, and you almost see that the movement has split a bit. Well, you know, for me, just Professor, what you're speaking about, isn't it interesting how when you're younger, you aren't as, as uh, I suppose, polarized, very much more mixed in, in schools, you know, at the primary level and, and then high school a little bit less. And then suddenly at tertiary, which should be quite integrated, is then hugely segregated. Um, and, you know, it's it's almost contrary to what you're saying about this recognition or social cognition because you you supposedly have less influence from from parents and elders when you're you're in that varsity stage. Like, how does that work? Well, I, I, let me uh, put it. Let me answer you this way. When I asked the question, um, you know, in the anonymous survey, I wanted to know who you would vote for and why, and I asked. Um, you know, across various elections just to ask that you were pretend you were eligible to vote. Um, and it was very interesting that for the white population, for example, they would not have considered any other alternative except the Democratic Alliance. And a key reason being that they felt the Democratic Alliance, um, you know, is a party that would advance their interests and almost protect a minority status, if you will. Um, when I asked the same question uh, of the black population, the vote was very much split between the ANC and the DA. Unfortunately, the EFF wasn't in existence um, yet when we asked this question. And the reasons, again, uh, born free participants who said they would vote for the ANC did so on the basis of um, they see it as a black party, it's a liberation movement that brought freedom, it's a party that will advance complete transformation of society. And participants that indicated they would vote for the DA are ever stated, you know what, there's bad governance, we see um, a lot of allegations of corruption, no, the ANC has not necessarily delivered a better life for all. So amongst the black population, for me, there was a higher degree of political maturity because you are 
because they were willing to consider political alternatives. And I think, you know, the construction of that goes very much to uh, what you've learned at home, your life experience, you know, what you live on a daily on a daily basis. And it is those things that kind of inform how we see the world, um, where we see our place in the world, and eventually how we construct our political reality. Prof, um, I think winding down, that's very interesting because what you're essentially saying was they were seeing the DA as a party of the future. Um, and then the EFF came onto the scene and seems to have captured the popular imagination of, of, of a range of generations. If you had the EFF in on this, what, how do you think this would change, uh, your, your findings in, just in your, in your opinion? Oh, in my opinion, if I had um, the EFF there, I think we would have seen maybe a stronger split of the vote amongst the opposition parties. Um, and also perhaps a stronger narrative on um, radical change, for example, you know, radical quick change to really advance a national democratic revolution. Mm. Um, predominantly because the basis of the EFF, of course, is that, you know, the ANC had sold out on the National Democratic Revolution, and therefore they are here to represent the ANC's forgotten constituency. Uh, just wrapping up, Prof, uh, what is the political future then of South Africa, given your findings? So what was the so what of your of your research? So mm-hmm. we found this about um, born freeze. Uh, what does the future of South Africa look like if you look at the results of your, of your study? Well, I think the sad what for me is, uh, you know, we really, really need to start reflecting on um, opening up that space for a responsible dialogue, especially around issues of race relations, but not just race relations. This is race relations and access to, uh, you know, political and material goods, things like education, health care, um, job opportunities basically trying to equalize the field. And for me, that is where the education system becomes quite important. Imagine, for example, you are running a race, you know. Um, If a person starts 50 meters in front of you, chances are that they are going to win that race because you have a little bit of a a, a disadvantage in terms of distance. Mm. So I think we do need to look at policy and how policy is supposed to equalize our political playing field and our socioeconomic playing field. Prof, and that's a very serious conversation that needs to happen. We saw, we saw recently um, in a school somewhere in Gauteng um, a worrying uh, exam paper or test paper. Um, I'm not sure if you, if you, saw, if you saw the news about it. Um, it, was a caric- it was a caricature of uh, the president, Jacob Zuma, and... And uh, the question was to the kids, I imagine, primary school, maybe high school, would you vote for this person? Um, and the answer was very, you know, oh, you look stupid and so on. I would never vote for him. And it's quite clear it's Jacob Zuma. Uh, so you mm. speak about education. You speak about policy. Uh, how far are we between the reality and, 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 and what's supposed to be policy? I imagine that's not policy. We saw the, the, the MEC of education in Gauteng, Panyazali Sufi, uh, taking a strong stand against that. Uh, ostensibly, I guess, because it is, um, it, it is counter to whatever policy exists. So how do we make sure that this policy translates ultimately into the classroom and ultimately then into the hearts and minds of young people? 
Look, I mean, in terms of the example that you have just given, you know, that, that really plays on those stereotypes, you know, and of course that is completely unacceptable. But I think even more worrying, um, I don't know if you have, would have seen this yesterday, there was a report to say that around 60% of grade fours in South Africa cannot read. Mm. Um, you know, so when we speak of, of education as a, and, and equalizing the playing field, it is making sure that you've got qualified teachers in the classroom. It is making sure that all schools, regardless of where they are situated, have the basics. Um, you know, I've had the experience of seeing a, a young child bring a bucket from home to school to use the bucket as a desk for the day because there's no proper infrastructure or desk um, at the school. It's making sure stationery and textbooks are there. Hmm. If we do not address some of the um, lacking, some of the lacking things that we have in the education system, the only thing we're doing is we are reinforcing um, or recreating those apartheid-constructed forms of socioeconomic organization and committing another generation to a life uh, cycle of poverty. Professor, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Professor Jolene uh, Kutzer, phoning uh, from Port Elizabeth. She's a professor at NMMU. Thank you for uh, your time and uh, good luck with the rest of your research. All right, thank you very much, and I look forward to talking to you again. Cool, thank you so much. You see, people from PE are so nice, aren't they? They're just so, so nice. Check out her uh, her, her research studies that are online. Just put in Jolene Kotze, K-O-T-Z-E. We'll also put in the show notes as well. Very, very interesting, so specifically around the single narrative. That's something that I... I'm feeling passionate about at the moment the single narrative story. The single story, yeah, yeah. it 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 is interesting. I'm just curious how you know, kids are so curious. You know, you you want to to touch everything, taste everything, put your fingers in everything, get to you speak to everybody, and you see it with little babies, right? Uh, you, if you let them be, uh, they'll go up to the to the, another black baby. They'll have the conversation and baby talk and whatever. It's so very very cool like that. Right? <laughs> Expert in babies. And, yeah. then, and then what happens? They, they they begin to grow up and and they begin to latch on to. Single stories. The single story about the stove is that if you touch it, it's going to burn you. They latch on to the single story about uh, playing in the traffic. You're going to get hurt. Unfortunately, they also latch on to single stories about individuals. A single story about a black person is this. single story about a white person is this. So it, it, it's quite interesting how they, they gradually begin to go to that point of having single stories, right? And, and, and that then reinforces the experiences of those people. Mm. You and I have spoken many times about uh, going to school, Model C schools, uh, and we had a diverse set of friends. Um, and as we've grown up through high school, through university, and up to now, you see how, uh, the, the, the the proportion of friends from other margins, races just yeah. begins to just dwindle down until you have maybe one or two uh, quota friends and the mm. rest are, are of your of your race. Well, remember that that woman that came into studio, uh, Christy, a few a few months ago, saying on our white privilege shows, uh, saying how it's just easier. Yeah. It's but when easier. does it become easier? Because there was a point when it was when it was easier to just get on with everybody. At well, I which think it's point easier it when it's easier? when it's when it's on you. You know, like mm. think about this right now. Like the structure of high school is very structured. You have to engage with different people, right? Then, as soon as you get out of high school, 
what's bringing you together? Varsity brings you together in a way that's different to high school because you come together around a lecture. Uh, but who's in that lecture? But what happened? So, so for you specifically, right? You started at a point in primary school, mm. but by high school that had also changed. Yeah, you were still the the, the setup is still the same. So, what happened that well, reduced the well, number of black friends in your circle? No, I suppose for me it's very and very. By the way, you've gone full circle now. Now, <laughs> like you're just weird because yeah, you started there, no, you went man, through, you no, went through man. the majority white friends. Now you've got majority black friends again. What's your problem? Yeah, you know, I'm just I'm just seeing who's got the better deal available. You know, like. <laughs> No, I think the interesting thing for me specifically, and, and my case is of a very privileged white background, is I went to a government school. Very, very cool. Um, former Model C, I think they would call it. And very integrated. I remember back in the day, so now, you know, I'm an 80s kid, so I think it was 1992, um, Radio 2000 came to interview our school because we had finally allowed black children to be in the same classrooms as white children. And they came up to me and a guy named uh, Sipiwe, and they were like, "So, is this your friend?" And I was like, "Yes, it's it's my friend." I wish I had that audio because it was just so beautiful of an, an Andrew so long ago. Mm. And they're like, "But do you see that he's different to you?" And I said, "No, um, of course not. At that age, you, you don't see anything." When I went to high school, I went to a private school. I was lucky enough to go to one of those guys. But the problem with private schools is one, it was monastic, so we had a huge gender issue. That, that I'm, I'm very passionate about right now. And the second thing was there were no black people because no one could afford it. You had a few scholarship children, um, who were lucky enough to get scholarships, but that was it. I mean, out of 80 boys, we had about five black kids, mm. um, which just naturally meant that you didn't have the access to, to in, engaging, interacting with black people. Um, and then obviously at varsity, you know, you go to University of Cape Town. Again, a quite an expensive, exclusive university, even though it's government owned. And the, the majority there are white people. Mm. So again, you're limited to how you can engage with black people, colored people, Chinese people, Indian people, mm. whatever the case may be. Um, and then you, you come, have to work. And then you come now and, and then you flip the script. How does that happen? Because obviously you've got friends that are, You've had friends that are white all throughout primary school, high school, and then you're now where you've got a lot of black friends. How did how did that happen? Was that conscious? Was that? I think it was conscious. It was a conscious decision by me to say I want to engage with South Africa fully and understand South Africa fully. And I'm I'm nowhere on that path, just by the way. But that's the journey that I want to go on. And that doesn't mean now I want to just have black friends because they're black. I want to be able to be open and put myself in situations. That you can engage with people who are, have similar interests to you and their color doesn't matter. So, for example, I'm lucky enough that I, I enjoy the art world. So you go to exhibitions in Brahms and so on and so on. And there's a lot more integration and engagement around art, which is super cool. As opposed to if you went to the Baron in Santon or Morningside or Four Ways or whatever it is, where you're going to find just a very singular story. Mm. Um, so, putting yourself in places where there is uh, a possibility and opportunity for engagement and then actively searching for that engagement and not being scared. Why do you think that we are the generation that has almost dropped the ball then? Because I think our parents were looking to us at some stage to say, okay, this is the generation that is going to make it all okay. And, and, and in spite of your best efforts, we're certainly not that generation. So 
with all of your integration and so on, you're still prone to racism, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. I think the problem, the problem, I think, <laughs> and I haven't thought Shifting this through. In his chair, look at this, look at this. Eh? <laughs> I'm the interviewer, yeah. <laughs> I think the problem is that we think of, um, you know, we think of events, we think of racism, we think of gender issues as a point in time. So even the born freeze, a point in time, 1994 happened, you're either yes or no, you're either born free or you're not. And the truth is, as we've seen and what the professor was saying is that it, it integrates um, those threads, those social threads from your parents, from your community leaders, from churches, from uh, sports grounds, get engaged and integrated into your way of thinking. And you don't even know it. And that's the scary part. Mm. And you don't even know that you are racially prejudiced or racist for that matter. Um, that's the scary part. Mm. Um, so did we fail our parents? Probably. Probably. Um, sound like someone else now saying probably. Well, but, but, but <laughs> here's the sad thing. It's not so much. I think the disappointment isn't so much that we failed our parents. It's that we failed the next generation. Sure. Because now we're the carriers. You, you remember our show on Are You Raising Racists? We are now the generation that's raising the next generation. And unfortunately, in our behavior, in our mindsets, in the things that we do, we are raising the next generation of mm. racists. Oh, listen, I totally agree. I, I see it all the time. It's, it's very scary, specifically since now we're at an age, unfortunately, where we're getting older and now we are you know, spawning kids. And I'm like, we haven't had the time to actually engage with the, these issues mm. properly. Mm. We haven't had the time to actually listen and be heard and speak and speak our minds and get angry and have a dialogue that isn't on Twitter that's screaming at each other and going, gee, so this is where you come from. Fantastic. So mm. we haven't had our time to actually make up our own minds. We're still verily, verily, mm. we are still very um, prejudiced by what society is thinking. Um, their thoughts become our thoughts. We haven't taken the time to think. And and now we're having kids, mm. um, which is a problem. So they should just neuter all of us. They should. We don't deserve to. No, be, we, we should. don't deserve to spawn the next generation. You know, Rebecca Davis <laughs> spoke about this. I, like, I want to leave it there. I want to leave it there. Let's get some of the born freeze in here because uh, I'm worried that the, that this show is about born freeze. We haven't spoken to that. Well, partly because uh, half of them decided to let us down ah, last minute. That's no, another, like that's another generational thing. Hey? It's like this generation, like, yes, we're coming. Yes, we're coming. Five minutes before the show, no, we're not coming. Ah, it's because that's the, what they are. Something else came about. Aye, born freeze. Well, there is one that's going to take the heat for all of them. Yeah, let's go. Right. <laughs> so, Gift, you speak for everyone here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Gift, welcome to the show. Um, you're on the show because of your age, nothing else. So we, Thank we, you. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> you're a born free. Uh, give us your story. Give us your background. Um, good morning, by the way. Um, I was born in Soweto, um, Deep Glove Zone 2. And then uh, my parents and myself and my younger siblings moved to Pertia. Um, and then because of work purposes, my, my parents had to move down to Nalspreit. So moved down to Nalspreit, I'd say I was in grade well, I was just finishing grade seven, about to enter high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and from a very township environment, attending school in the township to going into now um, a private setting, private school setting, 
um, in a small town, it was a huge shift. It was a huge change for myself. I had to adapt very quickly. Um, and I, I, I really enjoyed high school. And then after that, um, left high school, obviously matriculated and went to varsity. Was your high school quite mixed? It was very mixed. It was very mixed. We had people from all, all parts of life. Um, because it's in Nasbred, close to Mozambique, close to Swaziland. Um, so we had international students. We had students from everywhere and it was, it was mixed gender, race. It was, it was, it was quite, um, diverse. Gift, just, uh, for purposes of, 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 uh, those listening, how old are you and, and what year were you born in specific? What's your birth date? I am 22 years old, born in 94. You were born in 1994. Yes. So, so all of this is happening post 94. Yes. You are going to, you're leaving Soweto, moving to Protea, going to Nelspreit. Mm. Uh, so your life is going from, from not very integrated to increasingly integrated until you end up at the University of Pretoria, mm. where you have gone maybe from being in the majority in Soweto to being in a balance in Nelspreit and then moving to University of Pretoria. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Was that, were you in the majority? Were you in, were you in the minority? Were you in, was it more balanced as well? Um, the thing with, in high school, I, I, I always look back and realize how in high school I saw our societal environment as a bubble. Um, we, we didn't necessarily see the, the, the difference within ourselves because if you afforded to go to that specific school then you are financially stable and you and your family are financially stable so there wasn't um the dynamics of okay you you here because you're white or you here because you're black you here because you can afford you can afford to come to um, the school. Whereas when now I moved to varsity, it's a different story because there are students who are there through different ways. You know, they, they, they financially, they, they through student loans. Some are, are there through, um, scholarships or bursaries or whatever. And now you, you need to sort of adapt, not necessarily, um, ad- adapt to that situation, but, be aware of when I tell my story, share my story to a fellow student, I cannot expect them to have the same background as I do. Um, and I think it became very interesting to see and to, to, to hear people's stories in varsity. Um, because that's when it's, 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 it's once again, people from all over. Gift. So you, Tell us about your circle of friends. Okay. What, what, what's the, what's the mix of your circle of friends? It's very interesting because, um, I had more of a mix of friends in high school than I do now. Um, I've got a couple of white friends who I like to refer to as being woke. Um, my woke white friends, you know, um, who, who pretty much, um, Understand where I come from When I talk about my blackness And who understand Where I come from when I talk about The perception of whiteness as well um, Who are aware of the social Political um, structures That we are faced or, or Influenced by currently in South Africa Who are aware of um, An example white privilege Who are aware of um, where we still are economically um, in South Africa. And that's the circle of friends that I like to um, associate myself with. So it's a majority black circle with a few white people who... Integrated. I've got Chinese friends. I've got mm. Asian friends. Um, mm. I've got Indian friends. Um, mm. But as I said, my group of friends are 
more woke than the others would be. Why do you why are you not friends with unwoke people? Um I just I just don't like that would be sleeping, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, unwork is not a word. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Urban dictionary. Get up with get up to speed with what young people are saying, Bishop. I think um I've got a problem with narrow minded people, the p narrow minded thinkers. Um I I I always feel like I'm talking to a wall and I cannot get my point across. Um I try my best to 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 influence people who are not woke to see the light in wokeness. If if I'm to explain what wokeness is, is basically being conscious, you know, um, being aware once again of the the the, the situations that we are um, facing in South Africa right now. Do these white people? Sorry, do these white people? Think of themselves as white Because it's very easy to say the, the level of whiteness Yeah And they talk about whiteness Like they're yeah. not white Yeah um, Some Yeah they, 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 they do They do In terms of my group of friends They think they The, the white they, kids are They know they are white And they're happy to be white They 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 they're not happy to be white, are they? N- no, not, let me not, not. not say that they're, they're, they're not happy to be white. They would rather not be white. No, 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 not that they will not rather be white. They're fine with being white. It's just that they're trying to change the perception of how people perceive white people. Do you get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like they, they, they're trying to work towards changing that stigma or that okay. stereotype about white people. And the only way they can do that is through uniting with everyone and showing that there's a different side to the white people as well. Gift, you speak about open-mindedness, you speak about wokeness, uh, and you assume that you're on the woke and open-minded side. How do you just assume that you are on that side and you're not on the other side? You're not the close-minded side. I've been reading a lot of... Um, Steve Biko. Steve Biko, black consciousness. Um, <laughs> Franz Fanon, okay, yeah. And, and I mean, in, in, in varsity, I did a lot of electives in history. I did, um, a lot of, um, electives in gender studies as well. Um, so I think when you are exposed to all these different types of theories that challenge each other, you are able to have your own standpoint and, and almost have your own vision and what you perceive as, as how we living right now. What's your standpoint? My standpoint is that. What's your standpoint about white people? My standpoint about white people is that I think. White people stop choosing your words carefully. (laughs) Let's have it. White people need to stop living in a facade in South Africa. They need to stop assuming that every black person is now fine because we're living in um, free in in a democratic South Africa where black people now can drive Range Rovers. Who told you that they're living in a facade? It's what I've been exposed to. So all white people are the same. No. No, not so there's a similarity. I would, I would, yes, exactly, exactly. Um, but what I'm interested in what formed that opinion, what experiences you say you've been exposed to, what give us yes. examples of things okay. you've been exposed um, to. I'd, I'd say personal r- racist experiences with, with white people. And the one time I was with a group of friends of mine, and we just all happened to be black, and we went to a shopping center. Um, and I parked my car by the parking lot, went, my two friends went into the shops to go buy some 
dash and alcohol, whatever, they come back and then we're standing outside next to my car. This white lady comes with her daughter. Um, I think it was my first year. Yeah, she comes with her daughter and she starts shouting at us because we're standing next to her car. It's as if she was assuming that we probably wanted to steal her car or what. I don't know. And the, it, it was so interesting for me to see how the daughter was shocked by her mom's actions, mm. you know, towards us. And I was like, that in itself is already sort of an, an, an indoctrination or an influence that you have on a younger generation. Now, whenever she sees, let's say, a black person, she's going to refer back to her own experience through her mom. Why, know, why did you her. assume that that experience, she was shouting at you because you're black? Because she was saying, get away from my car, you bloody black Say it people. on radio. <laughs> Say it. Get away, you bloody black Cafes, you know, Um, it was it was very insulting, but it was an experience that once again I can refer to today because it was hit home. And that experience has now shaped your opinions. That one experience has shaped your opinions on an entire race. Um, no, I've had multiple experiences. I've had multiple. Okay, so those multiple experiences, let's call them five or six. And and I, I, you know, I I do empathize with you. It's not nice to be. In those situations. Yeah. But let's just say you've had 10 experiences like that. Those 10 experiences now have shaped your opinion on white people as a race. The white people that I've been exposed to. Yes. But you then said in an earlier sentence that white people should get out of their bubble. Mm. So now you are talking about a race, right? Mm. You're not talking mm. about those 10 people that, mm. that were irritated. You're talking about mm. a race, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is the interesting thing for me, and and you are not alone in this, and this is not just a born-free thing, but the single narrative is really real, Yeah. right? What is your narrative as a black person right now? My narrative is to, I think, to, to especially with the youth, um, it's, it's to make the youth aware of where we are standing right now, um, the the... The issues we have amongst each other No, it, it, it doesn't even Necessarily narrow down to race But as humans, the issues that we Are facing in South Africa um, My My main goal or objective Is to say, you know what Let's have these conversations Let's talk about these Because you cannot be conscious unless you are aware And we can only be aware through Discussion, you know, through debates Through other people challenging your thoughts But what is your narrative? As I said My narrative is to Transform, you know I think it's that's my biggest my biggest. Do you goal. feel like you have opportunities? I do You do? I do have opportunities It's are you economically free? As an individual, no, I'm not. I'm not economically free. The reason why is because if you're going it's to... 22, though. Like, <laughs> were you economically free at 22? No, 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 but I'm, I'm asking what the narrative is. The reason, the reason why is I've just graduated from varsity and I'm unemployed. You know, those are the issues that I'm facing as a, 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 a youngster mm. in South Africa in 2016. Um, I have to now... But are you unemployed because you're black or are you unemployed because you're, you're just 22 and that's just the way things are in South it's, Africa? It's, it's really debatable. It's very debatable. How do you what feel? do you feel? I feel that I'm unemployed because I am 
I'm, I'm, I haven't necessarily, let me say my entire race of people have not been exposed to the amount of opportunities as maybe, let's say, the Indians or the whites. So you, you know? studied with people in your class, some yeah. black, some white. Mm-hmm. If you were to look into that group, how many of them are, are employed and how many of them are unemployed? And, and is there, is there a racial thing or is it just across the different races? There is a racial thing. Um, there's the, it's, they always say when it comes to work or business, or whatever, it's about who you know. It's almost, it's always easier if you, you, you've got contacts in, in high places that can help you with, with, um, employment. And most of the time, um, I'd see from my group of, um, graduates that, you know, most of the white students have been able to open up their own businesses, have been able to able to to get employment in a more easier manner because maybe the father knows the owner of the company who is look who can just create a position for that person to come in whereas for me it becomes much harder because i where do i begin who who do i start talking to well you went to a private school right yes i did i did those people i did do you, are you unemployed because you don't want to be employed? No, no. I I I love to work. I love working. What would you and like to work that's, in? That's that's why um, I'm an artist. I am a ah. creative. Um, that's why I've decided to start my own company now and start from the bottom, <laughs> so that one day I can be here. You know, um, because I think that's another problem with. Our generation is that we always wait. We wait for an employment instead of creating jobs for ourselves. So I was like, I'm going to get away from this mind frame or this mindset of, I, I want, I want employment. Where's, 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 where's employment? I can't find it. Let me just put my ideas together and create jobs. Let me create some employment for myself. Gift, uh, I just, I'm just interested in going back. At which point did you become conscious of race? I'd say, of race or mm. woke? No, of race. Of race. Mm. Um, I became very conscious when I was 11 years old. Did you know the year? What was happening? Um, I, so I had this one friend of mine, Daniel. Um, Damn, Daniel. Yeah. <laughs> I begin with the white man's. So Daniel's father, Daniel's father used to work with my dad um, and in the government uh, finance department. And... I, I, I remember the one time I went to go visit Daniel. I'm still 11 years old. I'm still young. And Daniel has his family over. So the uncles are there. The aunts are there. And I was the only black child there. And I was like, why are they looking at me like that? Why, why am I feeling weird about being here? I did not know what racism was, I'd say. So I think after me having that experience at Daniel's house, I then realized that, hey, there clearly is a difference because, I mean, my skin is a way darker shade than yours. So maybe that could be it. That could be the reason why, you know, I, I was I was looked at in a different way. Where's Daniel way. now? I haven't seen Daniel in 10 years. Fine, Daniel. What's his surname? Oh... <laughs> Daniel, if you're listening, <laughs> you lost a friend many, many years ago because yeah. you made him feel funny. Find His him. Family. <laughs> your family made him feel funny. Find him 
and reconnect. Mm. Our country now depends on a, this. Now in a damn Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> well, Andrew, we have heard we have heard from the seventies uh, with uh, Professor Kutzer. We've heard from the eighties with our conversation, and we've heard from the nineties with the uh, gift. Where does that put us, and where does that put you, having come into the show um, thinking that this was a dumb question? I think that uh, it's still a dumb question, but what I am fascinated by is this single story that uh, Professor Kutzer was speaking about, that that Gift alludes to, um, and I think there's something about this in the narratives that we that we speak about in South Africa the collective narratives, the black narrative, we as black people, we as white people, um, there's, there's a little eyes and the eyes are actually really important. Funny enough, you know, um, because I, as a human being need to be able to do what I want and not have to subjugate myself to what collective society thinks I, I need or want or want need to be a part of. But so that, this isn't narrative that, isn't that what got us here in the first place? This thing of, of, yes, of exactly. I, 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 I. No, so no, 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 no. This individualist, I am oh, individualist and sure, whatever. Sure. Yeah, but th- that then translates into other areas. I, 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 as opposed to we, we, we. Well, let me let me put it a different way, and and we have to get out of here because they're going to kill us if we go over time. Uh, Eusebius Macaiza made a really good point in our show a, a couple of months ago, where he spoke about. He, as a black writer, as a black author, cannot write anything other than about racism or history. And he doesn't want to do that. He wants to write whatever he wants to write about. He wants to do a story about Dacre, which is a historical a fictional piece, I believe, you know. And But because he is a black author, he is boxed into this thing as him, as a black person, needs to write about race. And he's not like that. He doesn't want to do that. So we, as black people, have to think a certain way. We as white people have to be, you know, prejudiced a certain way. And I think that the story of narrative is something we've got to get into, man. We've yeah. got to get into this. Maybe it's about we as South Africans. Well, that's it from us. <laughs> <laughs> Just kill it like that, Ray. Yeah, just kill it like that. Eh? that, that that's it from us. We're out of here. Thank you, thank you. Listen, we're going to do a story on the, 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 the black narrative. What is it? How is it? Who is it? And where should it go? Uh, that is going to be next week. Tune in. Cliffcentral.com forward slash frankly speaking. Thank you so much to our guests. Gift, best of luck in the future. And Rory, she's a banana. And to the guests that, the, the guest that never came? Yeah, what do you want to say to them? Nonke. Hashtag. Don't do that, Rory. Don't do that. <laughs> Ciao, ciao. This is cliffcentral.com.